One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came down and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Then down to chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? As I said, God raised Moses up for a purpose, and what a purpose it was. But it's no different from any of us. He raised us up for a purpose as well. We all have a purpose. I read this, uh, this article 
uh, Claude Alexander Bishop, it's actually from one of his sermons, uh, of the Park Church in Charlotte, uh, urges Christians from all walks of life to step up into bold leadership. And here's what he says that bold leadership is. There are questions that beg to be answered. There are dilemmas to be overcome. There are gaps to be filled. And the challenge is for you to fill them. That is the essence of the high call of spiritual leadership. There is a purpose for your being here. You are meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something, overcome something, and in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. That's what he's raised us up to do. For the glory of God, for the good of his people, to fill in a gap, to lead, to have influence. And sometimes to figure out this out, it takes a lifetime. It took Moses 80 years to figure it out. The reason I had Tim read both of those passages is that between chapter 2 and chapter 3, 40 years go by. Moses steps out on a quest to do something for his people. It doesn't actually happen till 40 years later. That's a long time to learn a lesson of leadership. I've still got 18 years, so bear with me. 40 years between those two passages. I don't have all the time to go through all the events that happen in the Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. You can read about them, but in summary, they're through a, a set of miraculous circumstances. Moses, the son of Hebrew slaves, ends up being the son of the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. And you know the story. He gets put in a they, they wanted to kill all the babies, and he gets put in a basket, and they float the basket along the Nile just when the daughter of Pharaoh was coming down, and, and Miriam, his sister, is sitting in the reeds, and the daughter of Pharaoh has compassion on the baby, and Miriam comes up and says, would you like me to find a nurse for the baby? And she says, yes. So she takes her to her mother, and, that, and Moses is raised for the first years by his family, but then he goes to live in the palace and become the daughter, or sorry, the son of the daughter of Pharaoh. I'll get it right. The son of the daughter of Pharaoh. And all that that entailed, right? Educated by the best teachers, living in lavish luxury, having all of the privileges and power and money, living an entitled life, able to do whatever he wanted. Whatever he wanted. He's the grandson of Pharaoh. Think about the privilege that that would entail. But Moses didn't forget where he came from. He had a heart for his people. And he wanted to lead them out of bondage. But it didn't go so well. 
He had the right vision, but he had the wrong plan. He had the right vision, but he had the wrong plan. And those are my two points today, by the way. And here's the thing. If we want to be leaders of influence, we need the right vision and we need the right plan. The right vision and the right plan. But here they are, the right vision, the wrong plan. Let's look at the right vision. If we want to understand Moses' heart and where he was coming from, we have this great little passage of this couple of verses in the book of Hebrews that tells us what was going on with him. This is Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Is that really true? Doesn't seem to line up with Exodus chapter 2, does it? Where he murders someone. <laughs> what, what is going on with these two things? Well, we do get a couple of clues. In verse 11 of Exodus 2, it says that he went out to his people. Uh, the word go out, yatsah is the same word used when Israel left Egypt for the exodus to go out. It was, it's almost like it's saying he turned his back on the palace. He went out to his people. So that squares with chapter or with Hebrews 11. He went out to his people. He went to see the Hebrews. He certainly didn't need to. He was having a fine life in the palace. And by the way, all of his education would have taught him to look down on manual labor. Those in the palace would not do manual labor. There's, I had included a section of this ancient Egyptian text to read to you, but it's too long and, and we don't have enough time. Um, but basically, it says how they look down on workers and slaves especially. This would have been all of his education. So for him to go out to the Hebrews, as it were, turn his back on Pharaoh was an amazing thing. It showed something in his heart, something that he had carried, perhaps his parents had taught him when he was young, before he had gone to the palace of Pharaoh, and that stayed with him. But then there's another word um, where it says that he, it, it's the word for looked. He looked on their burdens. The word yarah, he looked on their burdens, but it doesn't just mean he looked and saw that there was stuff going on. It means much more than that. It means to see with emotion. I don't know all the emotion, but I can imagine two of them. Probably anger that his people are being mistreated and absolute compassion for the one being mistreated. He looked with compassion towards his fellow Hebrew. So it's surprising. He was taught to have contempt for the slaves, to see himself as vastly superior to any of them. 
And yet he knows he's a Hebrew. He refuses to let his position dictate what he will do. So he goes out and he sees them with emotion. As it says in Hebrews, he was willing to be mistreated instead of enjoying the pleasures of sin. Maybe he thought he, God was just going to go right with him and whatever he did, he was going to work. What do we take away from this? Well, one takeaway is that we should be more aware of how much our brothers and sisters all over the world are suffering. There are many, many that are imprisoned or losing their lives, having difficulty. We actually heard a, a man who's coming under care of our presbytery from Nigeria talking about they live in the northern part of Nigeria where Boko Haram is, where all the kidnappings have happened. And he's talking about the danger of living there. His father had become a Christian uh, from Islam and um, had been beaten many times and was holding out for the faith. And he's here studying and is going back to be a pastor there. I mean, there are all over the world, we have brothers and sisters that are suffering. The ladies are reading a book about Muslim, about uh, Jesus showing up to these uh, Muslim women and the persecution that they're facing because they're turning to Christ in droves, actually. So much persecution that we really know nothing about. And it's easy for us to be oblivious to this reality. I subscribe to, uh, to the Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, it's an email blast that goes out about once a week. And they have always have three stories of... Um, people that are, that are suffering with prayer requests. And I, I pray through those things. If you're interested in that, I can tell you, it's Voice of the Martyrs, not one of them, com, org, whatever it is. But you can just, anyway, you know how to do that. Anybody need help learning how to surf the web a little bit? All right. But I would encourage you to be plugged in because we're not plugged in very well here. But what about here? How do, what's our takeaway for here in the United States? How do we apply this to our lives here? It says that Moses looked with the eyes of emotion, with, with I think, compassion towards his uh, fellow Hebrew and, um, and anger about what was being done to him. And, and, and there are so many things that caused the devaluing of human life here in our country that I think we need to be clued in on and we need to look with, with emotion, with compassion, um, where humanity is being degraded left and right. Some of these are controversial issues. Some of them may not be. Um, I'm just going to mention them because I think they're important. Uh, the way that we're degrading humanity, we have children in the womb, they are absolutely not considered. They are not considered in the fight over abortion or not. The child in the womb is not considered. They're not considered a child. But they are a child, biblically. We should have compassion, deep compassion. We're degrading humanity this way. We have drug runners at our southern border 
who are not only trafficking drugs, they're trafficking people. They're trafficking kids. Everything about the southern border thing is it's just messy. It's messy. And we can get into politics and all this stuff. I want to say who looks out for these people. Yeah, they're probably criminals coming across, but there are children who are being abused. There are families who are being abused. There's, we need to look at this with eyes of emotion, eyes of compassion. We can get into all the political junk. Don't want to do that. There's reasons for everything. There's, there's good reasons, whatever. I don't want to even get into that. I just want to say, can we look with compassion? I have two other areas that I would mention. What about poverty? I read this story, Lee Eckloff, in his book, Pastoral Graces, says this, once in a pastor's group I treasure, one of the brothers told us how heavy-hearted he was over a mother and daughter duo who was constantly coming to him for money and help. It had started with one of those phone calls looking for a handout, and it never stopped. They never came to church or showed any interest in the Lord, but the thing was, he cared about them and had helped them again and again. He asked us to pray for him because he felt so sad about the many needy people who called or came to the church door. Well, we in our pastor's group jumped to his aid. You can't let these people get to you, said one of us. Another informed him in our church, we have a policy that these calls all go to one of the elders. I don't ever get involved. And then I said, I think I know those two. We gave them some money. I can't believe they're still making the rounds. And then it hit me. I said to him in embarrassment, you're not asking us for advice, are you? And he shook his head, no. And humbled, we prayed for his heavy heart as he had asked. In those moments, I realized that by loving those difficult people, the rest of us preferred to ignore. Our friend was sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Here we were trying to make his troubles go away when Jesus wanted to meet him there. He was willing to get in the mess with people. It doesn't mean we're not prudent. Sometimes you help and it hurts. Sometimes you don't do the right thing. Sometimes you, you, you mess up. Sometimes you need to say, no, I don't know. But the whole point is eyes of emotion, eyes of compassion, and willing to get messy, messy. Let me give one more How about the sexual revolution. I looked this up on the website of the National Library of Medicine, a government entity. The data indicates that 82% of transgender individuals have considered killing themselves and 40% have attempted suicide, with suicidality highest among transgender youth. Now, those who are in favor of the transgender ideology 
would tell you that these suicide attempts are happening because of family, regret, uh, family rejection or microaggressions from non-trans people. I actually think there's a lot of that. I actually think there is a lot of microaggression and a lot of rejection on the part of family. I think that contributes to it. But I don't think it accounts for the epidemic of suicides that are being attempted by transgender people. I think biblically speaking, we can say they're just not being told the truth. They're trying to solve something one way that's not gonna get solved that way. It's not gonna get solved that way. Um, so what do we do about this? Well, our tendency is to stand up and preach the truth. Do they need the truth? I think so. I think, I think they need the truth. But see, if we lead with truth, we're not getting anywhere. We are not going anywhere. The outcasts flocked to Jesus. Why did they? Because Jesus approved of their lifestyles? Nope. He led with compassion. He led with eyes of emotion, and they were drawn to him like flies. And changes began to happen in the process. See, he looked at them with emotion. How do you lead? How do you look when you see humanity being degraded? And we could go on and on of the many, 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 many ills in our society. Are you flooded with emotion and compassion for those trapped in very difficult situations? Do we weep because people are struggling? I think that's what the call is of Scripture. See, leading people to Jesus requires compassion first. It requires compassion first. People will never believe unless they belong first. They've got to belong. And to belong, they have to come as they are, however they are, which is no different than the way we are, actually. We just pretty it up nicely. They won't believe unless they belong first. So what are we willing to do to make people belong? Feel like they belong? I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's something we need to talk about. It's something we need to talk about. Well, that's the great plan that Moses had. He, uh, sorry, that was the great, um, that was the great thing that Moses had. It was the right vision. He was seeing things correctly. He was seeing injustice. He wanted to fix it. But um, why then was he such a colossal failure? Well, because he had the wrong plan. He had the wrong plan. Even though his heart was in the right place, he wasn't going about it the right way. So which plan was that? Um, well, it was his own plan. 
uh, it felt like it was seat of the pants, right? Sounds, Moses sounds a lot like me. Seat of the pants, just do it right in the moment, right? It was his own plan. Uh, he did what he thought was the right thing to do. Look at verses 11 and 12. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and so he kills him. He just takes care of him. He probably learned combat in the house of Pharaoh. He probably a MMA fighter or something. Learned how to defend himself. Well, what was he thinking? Well, maybe he was thinking that he could lead an uprising. This was war. And the only way they were going to free these people is that people were going to have to die. So he thought he was going to lead an uprising among the Hebrews. So besides the obvious fact that he killed someone, we might even excuse it by saying he was starting a holy war against the unjust Egyptians. So what's the problem? Well, he was gonna free the Hebrews, which is a very noble goal, but he was gonna do it by means of his own leadership gifts, his own position in Egypt, his desire to see them freed, that he would stand up and they would see the prince of the palace come out and everybody would fall all down in front of him and worship him and they would follow him out of Egypt because he had all the gifts to be able to get it done. What's the problem with that? Isn't it good to use your gifts and your intelligence and your know-how to accomplish great things for God? Well, yes and no. Well, obviously, this was not God's plan. Verse 13, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Maybe Moses is perplexed by this. What he did, he did for the Hebrews, didn't he? Why was this man angry with him? He was there to save them, to lead in a rebellion, and then to lead them away from Egypt. What was the problem? Well, it was simply that. He wanted them to follow him so that he could save them. But he had no ability to save anyone. Isn't this the key for us? We can have all the compassion in the world, but we have no ability to swoop in and save anyone. So we jump to the other side and we become truth tellers. This is what you need to do to change. But God is asking us to be compassionate people with no power. See, the only one that can save is God, right? He's the only one that can swoop in and save, but we don't like that. We want to take the bull by the, hand, the, the, bull by the horns and do what we know to do and get this thing done. We're Americans after all. That's what we do. 
Only God. Psalm 27 says, some trusted chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When we try to be saviors, it ends up being manipulation. When we try to get just, you ever tried to change your kids? You might be fearful about something that's going on with them. And what do you do? You put on the screws. You begin to manipulate because this is the way you're afraid. So you've got to control the situation. And all it does is become manipulation and people don't want that. It's like the Hebrew slave says, who anointed you and made you Lord over us? You can't control your kids. Well, you can control their behavior when they're little. That's easy. Maybe it's not so easy for some of you. I don't know. But boy, as they get older, you can't control anything. They have a mind of their own, as they should, as they should. It's only God that can do these things. When we try to be saviors, it ends up being manipulation. When we try to be the savior, it's not noble. It's, it's not humility. It's actually pride because I've got to take control of the situation. Moses had the training, the education, the position, the leadership gifts, all of the things necessary to exact change. But what was missing? He didn't have any humility. And humility is where you recognize your need and you trust in a sovereign God. Listen to what uh, commentator Philip Ryken says about this. When Moses decided to take matters into his own hands, he was attempting to achieve salvation by works and not by grace. The proof that, it, that his way was not the right way was that God sent him into the wilderness for 40 years before giving him another chance to deliver Israel. God wanted to make sure that his people would be saved for his glory and when salvation finally came, it would not be through the, the strength of any man, but through the power of God alone. See, God says he won't share his glory. He's the only power that can do anything in your life, in your children's lives, in our country, in your job, in that relationship that's going sour. You don't have the power to save it to fix it, but you can humble yourself with eyes of emotion and give it to God and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? So what does this mean? Well, it means that we probably all need a wilderness experience before we actually get this. We'll probably need to go through some serious humbling that gets us off of the pedestal of our self-centeredness so that Jesus can be there. See, Jesus' way is, no, is different. And Moses had to learn that lesson. And, and brothers and sisters, we desperately need to learn that lesson. Here's the way of Jesus. He came as a baby and had to learn to talk and to walk. and to, He had to learn, the God of the universe had to learn to potty train. Just think about that one for a second. I had some other comments, but my wife made me get rid of them. 
um, he had to learn to clean his body. <laughs> he had to learn to rest when he was tired. Just think of all the things that he had to learn. His life began the opposite of Moses. Moses was born, to, he was in the palace. He had everything. We lived like kings also. Jesus was born into rank poverty. This is what he, he came in humility. And he waited 30 years before he even began his public ministry. And his ministry started with outcasts and no accounts, fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. They were a ragtag group that couldn't change anything. They were not important people. You see the difference here between them and Moses, who was the big man on campus coming in to swoop in and save his people? It didn't work out for him. Jesus walked with these ragtag bunch of people and he taught them and he did life with them, but it wasn't enough. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, the disciples thought their day in the sun had come and that Jesus would take over. Now he's going to come in and control the thing. But within a week he was dead and their lives were destroyed. Talk about Clueless. They weren't clueless. This is the way of Jesus. When you think you know what he's doing, you probably don't. And when you think you're understanding him and his ways, you probably don't. This is why we're not people that should be doling out advice all the time. We may have some knowledge in our head, but, but God's ways are different than what we understand and just when you think you don't get it at all, that's probably when you're starting to get it. Moses in front of the bush, I can't do that. Moses with the Egyptian, oh, we're going to get rid of this guy. We're done with him. Kill him. Follow me. Moses in front of the bush, I'm a nobody. I can't do that. I can't do that. His ways are opposite. The way down is the way up. His death was actually his victory, or might we say it was our victory? He didn't need victory. He could have destroyed Satan and the enemy anytime he wanted, at any time. Didn't need to go to a cross. He could have just done away with it. But in order to gain us, in order that we might be his, he had to come and he had to die on a cross to be victorious. That was the victory. But then he rose again, and here Here's the thing. It was his resurrection that absolutely turned a motley crew into the most unified, loving, God-leaning, God-relying, most formidable, compassionate, humble force on the face of the earth. And Christianity began to spread, and it's still spreading to the uttermost parts of the world with people who are nobodies. People in prisons, people in destructive relationships in the Muslim world are being beaten. This is how Jesus is taking the world by storm? Does that fit our American view of things? 
but it's spreading. See, Christians were the ones that were saving unwanted babies from the garbage dump in ancient Rome. Christians were the ones that had nothing to lose by ministering to people when the plague hit ancient Rome. And all of the powers that be were escaping the cities, the cities, but Christians were coming in to minister to the sick. They weren't cutting down the Romans or standing up to the Romans or making war against the Romans. They were simply ministering to the hurting and risking themselves in the process with eyes of emotion. During the time of Calvin, they sent some 2,000 missionaries to Africa with the average lifespan of six months but they went in droves because they loved well and were desperate to see God's kingdom move forward. They weren't going to Africa to conquer like Moses was trying to do. They were going to Africa to let God be God and to make him known no matter the cost. And most of them paid dearly with their lives. God is, God is calling us to the world, not to see it as a battlefield, but as a mission field. That's far different. This is a very different implication. If Jesus has seen us as a battlefield, he would have destroyed us. But he saw us as a mission field, and he had compassion on us, and he died for us. So what does this mean? Well, it means that we take our talents, our money, our time, our intelligence, whatever we have, and we lay them at the feet of Jesus and we say, not my will, but your will be done. Use me in whatever way you want. Send me to the jungles of Borneo or the jungles of Costa Rica if you want. Send me to the corporate world if you want. Have me be devoured there if you want. Send me to the inner city. Send me to live in a dangerous zone for your sake. Send me to work with people that are not like me if you want. Whatever you want, take what I have, what I am, and use it for your glory and giving me a burning compassion for those who do not know you. I belong to you. I am not my own. I belong to you, Jesus, you alone. Take my heart, my soul, everything I am. I belong to you, Master, Savior, Friend, that's the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray.